Welcome to the Nay Chuan Podcast. My name is Isaac Kamins. This is a bi-weekly podcast where my friend Jess O'Brien and I discuss internal martial arts, meditation, and qigong. This week we are talking about the 1928 Guoshu Tournament. Uh, it was a major event in Chinese martial arts history. Uh, Leo Hongjie was part of that tournament, so we're sort of wrapping up our discussion of his life. Uh, we also discussed the end of the warlord era and the sort of reunification of China and what that meant for martial artists and people in general. Um, then we move on to talking about the spine stretch. Uh, we finished the second half of the spine stretch, the rising up portion. Uh, talk about some basic tips for doing that, uh, as well as wrapping up sort of the instructional portion of the book, talking about the basic tips for practice, things like that, guidelines, etc. We're reaching the end of season one, and we're going to begin uh, season two. We're going to have a little bit of a break. During the break, we're going to release some of the interviews we've done. Uh, The newer interviews, you'll have to check out our Patreon for, but these are some of the ones we did last year. Uh, As well as that, we're going to be doing some instructional stuff during the break. And then in season two, we're going to start discussing some of the lineages of Leong Jae and the people that we've mentioned over the last season, as well as some that we haven't mentioned. Uh, then we're going to discuss uh, some of the other Nagongs in the system, not as in much detail as Energy Gates, but we're going to go through the rest of them and give people an idea of what the entirety of the system looks like, not just the very beginning of it. In, in addition to all that, we're going to try to do some answering Uh, listener questions about what the material we've been covering and stuff like that so uh, check that out and enjoy the episode take care welcome back to the naja chun podcast with isaac and jess we're continuing our discussion of opening the energy gates of your body by bk francis Last couple episodes, we've been looking at the history of Chinese martial arts in the 20th century, centering around the life and times of Master Liu Hongjie, who's described in the book. Um, so the last few episodes, we've looked at the Boxer Uprising of 1900, and then we looked at the fall of the Qing Dynasty era around 1912. Um, we'd like to forward now to another pivotal, huge moment in Chinese and in world history is 1928. Um, and at this point, Master Leo is 25 years old. He's a uh, young soldier. And at that moment in time, nationalist forces take Beijing and the warlord era comes to an end. Um, Now there's a more of a sense of unification in the country. Chiang Kai-shek and the Guomindang faction now rule the Republic of China until it's overthrow by Mao Zedong's People's Liberation Army 20 years later. So this is, uh, again, you know, one of these huge moments of history that Master Leo is a witness to. Chiang Kai-shek and the Guomindang defeated the warlords during the northern expedition between 1926 and 1928, unifying the country at the end of that in 1928. The Guomindang proceeded to install its nationalist government at that time. China was symbolically reunified at this point. However, this only sets the stage for further conflict. So this, this, this group called the Guomindang gather, you know, either defeat some warlords and makes alliances with others and is able to ostensibly unify the country at this point in 1928. Um, and this is a really pivotal time in Leo Hongjie's life. He is a soldier at this point, And at 25 years old, he's a soldier in this Guomindang army. And they hold this big martial arts tournament that we mentioned last time, the famous 1928 Guoshu Guan tournament. 
Um, he, uh, the book Power of Internal Martial Arts describes that he fights representing the Bagua School at this national tournament and uh, gets to be, again, part of history where this, this huge event that continues to be discussed in martial arts circles ever since that time. Yeah. And I, th- I think that the, the tournament seems like it was a, um, a like almost like an Olympics or something where you're trying to show how, hey, everything's, go- everything's okay. We're, we got it all back together. Mm-hmm. Um, they to build this- national morale kind of, yeah. Right, to, to, or, you know, like a sport, you know, getting sports back after a mm-hmm. traumatic event or whatever. Right, like that. That's a symbol of hey, things are getting back to normal. So I think this competition was um, partially that, partially a uh, continuation of what we were talking about last time with the physical education and trying to show how strong they were and that whole thing. Right. The martial arts schools to this day remember the participants from their school who participated in this thing, and it's just this watershed moment in martial arts history. Yeah, I think it was where a lot of the people who did well in that became uh, either official like government instructors or started their own schools. So Mm -hmm. it was a, you know, it was a nice jumping off point. Uh, This tournament came to be regarded as one of the most significant historic gatherings of Chinese martial arts masters. After the first several days of the competition, the fighting competitions had to be halted because many participants were injured. The final 12 contest- contestants were not permitted to continue, with the public excuse being they fear of more injury or a death. There's a picture of the top three guys, and I think it's the main, the guy who won, or but he's in the middle. But his face is all fucked up. He's like, looks like he's got the shit kicked out of him. And he's one of the winners, so who knows what the losers look like. It sounded pretty rough. So oh I was, my God. the last yeah. thing here is the winner was determined by a vote by the participants. And many of the top 15 finishers went on to teach at the official Guoshu Guan government-sponsored martial arts school. So it sounds like teachers did come out of this exhibition, this Olympics, this uh, there was tournament, but I, I can only imagine there was a lot more than just the fighting tournament oh, and sure. exhibition being involved and demonstrations and connections between masters. If you did well in that tournament, like I said, it was, you know, it was like doing well in the Olympics or something. You can, you right. can, you can market that. You can use or that. The UFC as, of its time or something, you know, all these exactly, different yeah, styles yeah. clashing. Yeah. Just so that, you know, if you, if you had connections and you were in that tournament and you did well, you could get a, you get a teaching job, which, uh, as a martial artist, hey, that's pretty good. You know, if you get a government teaching job. Definitely. That's a great place to be for martial arts teacher in this era. So now we're going to look forward a little bit further into Master Leo's life. Um, he's He does this tr- this job training in the ni- early 1930s where he gets connected with Wu-style Tai Chi. Um, and as we, we take up the picture a few years later, it looks like maybe three or four years later, in 1937, Beijing is captured as Japan declares an all-out attack on China, beginning a brutal war that would last for another eight years. At this time, Liu Hongzhi has completed his military service as, and is in southern China. Now in his 30s, he is learning Wu-style Taiji from the Grand Master of the Art, Wu Jianchuan. So this is described in the uh, biographies of Liu Hongzhi in a few different books, where he gets to, at that military institute, he meets the sons of this famous Tai Chi master, and so he heads to Hong Kong, um, in his 30s to learn Wu-style Tai Chi, which seemed to have a big impact on him, because uh, especially because of its meditative qualities that he picked up on. 
Yeah, I mean, uh, we talked about that before about his connection with Wu Jinchuan and their, you know, how they bonded over, you know, meditation and doing that. And so I think, yeah, that those schools were a a nice meeting ground for lots of different martial artists. I mean, I, I remember one story about when they first started out, they had, um, they tried to have all of the internal martial arts schools and the external martial arts schools at the same time, like in the same, you know, together in the same place. And they had to end up splitting it because at one point the two like head instructor guys, you know, got into an argument <laughs> and busted out spears and were about to go right. at it. You know, and it's just like, oh, okay, this is the kind of energy you deal with. Right. And I think this is yeah, I think it's the Guoshu Guan that establishes the division between Wudong styles and Shaolin styles, which is somewhat artificial distinction, but that that comes into well, you know, they, I mean, you know, to it. the the disagreement was over what to put in the the curriculum, right? Whether or not they should do more external martial arts, more internal martial arts. So you know that that's why I think why they just said screw it and we'll just let you guys do your own thing and you can all fight it out at the tournament, you know? Right. Um. So. I just wanted to bring up how in you know this 1937 really begins this this epic of warfare uh, between Japan and China. That's is the background while Master Liu is in he leaves Beijing where all this fighting's going on and re- goes to southern China. I think it's less dangerous in southern China at this time. And he's in Hong Kong doing this Tai Chi training. So I wanted to just while we wrap up this discussion, um, and while Liu Hongjie is doing this training in Hong Kong. Um, I'm going to draw from a paragraph from Relaxing Into Your Being by B.K. Francis here. Wu Jian Chuen, along with his father, co-founded the Wu style of Tai Chi, and that's who Liu goes to spend time with and live at the home of. There, Liu learned Wu's Tai Chi thoroughly and became one of Wu's teaching assistants. So it sounds like he's helping him teach down there in Hong Kong as well. That's when Liu also attended a lecture by the head of the Tiantai School of Buddhism in Beijing. Um, so it sounds like he ends up going back to Beijing. Interesting. Yeah, I uh, Bruce said that he went back essentially to take care of his family or something like that. Right. So this is approximately 1938, 1939. At that point, he he spends a couple of years in a monastic setting studying Buddhism. So, and that sounds like it may have taken place in Beijing, which is interesting because that's right where the action is. Around 1940, as close as we can figure. During the midst of all this war is when Liu Hongjie departs for the deep mountains of western China, where he stays for a decade studying monastic Taoism and internal alchemy. And he just disappears for 10 years straight. Yeah, um, I prob- don't blame him. <laughs> I, mean, <laughs> I mean, yeah, otherwise he probably would have ended up going you know, going off to war, and who knows how that would have worked out. Um, but somewhere around 1949 uh, or 50, he returns to Beijing. Um, and to use a quote here from the, the relaxing into your being, the third phase of Leo's life began in 1949 when he returned from the mountains to Beijing. He had intended to take his family to Taiwan or Hong Kong, but was prevented from doing so by political circumstances. Leo stayed in Beijing until his death on December 1, 1986. Um, so 1940 to 1950 is this is sort of the final phase of his education. He lives the next 36 years quietly in Beijing as a pretty low profile guy. And, uh, you know, of the 1950s is the time of these great famines. The 1960s, 
um, is chaos in 1970s, the, the, the cultural revolution training in the martial arts and Qigong he taught. I just, this is what carried him through all that and gives me respect for it. You know, Leo developed a lot of things in his martial arts that were, um, very useful in times of, of, uh, turmoil, right. Where, where, where you couldn't, you know, you couldn't fight your way out of it necessarily, but you could at least try to relieve the stress of being in it. Um, Right. It's almost like the fight, you know, the fighting was a huge part of it, but that was the least of it, you know, in a lifetime of dealing with just, well, circumstances and modifying your training to fit the world you're in, you know, you're, you're, uh, it's a very different world where if somebody found out you did martial arts, you could end up being killed. Right. right. So if you just right. end up, so if you just go out there and do some Tai Chi and just, nah, I'm just doing it for my health, man, it's fine. You know, like no one's going to give you a hard time, but it was still a little bit risky, but at least, you know, it didn't attract the same kind of, right. you know, Tai Chi vastly more popular. So you can kind of blend in with your Tai Chi rather than keep the other stuff more to the side until yeah. you know until this early 80s when you know bk francis shows up in 1981 and martial arts and qigong are barely legalized at that point and they're starting to come back out of this uh this sort of hidden phase and sort of retreating during the cultural revolution comes back out so i guess looking at this history has shown us there's these waves where martial arts adapts you know there's it was used one way in the 1800s another way in the civil war another way cultural revolution martial arts continues to kind of just weave its way through society in china and who knows what's next you know it's a living art right so it, it's not necessary it has nothing to do with location it has nothing to do with the color of your skin it has nothing to do with your last name right it's anybody can do this stuff and it doesn't matter where the fuck you are in the world you can be on a mountaintop or in the middle of a city it's still going to help you relax. Right. So, you know, that, that part of it, I think it was, uh, you know, it's a universal, it's, it had. And so that's why things like Tai Chi got popular, right? Because they provided a, a an outlet for stress, even, you know, when you couldn't do anything else. Gabriel Chin, who I interviewed, that was the one standout thing that always, I always bring up was just like, he said, I would never would have survived without Tai Chi. And he doesn't mean he got in numerous armed battles, you know, but really the most important part was just staying alive with very little food through, through times when you're almost sure to die, you know, and he didn't let it destroy his spirit. And he's, he credited Tai Chi with that. It's like, damn, that's, that's pretty heavy. (laughs) He didn't say, you know, UFC and MMA got me through this. Like that would, that's not the same. Well, it's yeah. I mean, commercial art for that reason, you know, just fighting isn't gonna do it especially well it's what i said that you can't use your fists right to fight your way out of a a, a famine (laughs) oh yeah or or if somebody's at your door with a machine gun you know a lot of good it's gonna do if you punch one dude out you know the other six guys are just gonna blow you away right so go to the ground at that point you know it's just I mean, Chinese martial arts fit China, you know, all these, there's always these ages of turmoil where I don't know. It's just, you can see how Chinese martial arts are developed for these things, for, for these revolts, for famines, for uprisings, for just waves of change that just come across. Yeah. And sometimes, 
sometimes it's embraced, right? Sometimes martial arts are embraced and the Chinese say, oh yeah, we, we love our martial artists and we, you know, use them as a symbol of pride and other times they're hunted down. <laughs> yeah. A symbol of everything we need that needs to be crushed. So just depends on where you are in history. And, you know, that's, that's luck of the draw, I guess, you know, we happen to be in a fairly good time for martial arts, right? I mean, it's, it's martial arts are more popular now probably than they've ever been. You can see these threads of martial arts rising and falling as rebellions and uprisings and just waves of change and invasions and just, it's all, you know, it's just part of what makes Chinese martial arts so absolutely amazing and rich. There's just so many pieces preserved over time that remain useful for different time periods. And that's why it survives. Yep, it adapts. Returning to chapter 10 of opening the energy gates of your body, the Tai Chi spinal stretch. We looked uh, at the uh, first half of the spine stretch going down. Now we're going to look at some of the instructions for the second half of the spine stretch. You begin by open and lengthen the anterior front side of the spine as you unbend. And you said last time about how it's important to differentiate that front and back. And that's the instructions that are taught. So it's kind of like the first half when you go down is when you focus on the back of your back. And then as you come up, you focus on the front of your back. That is exactly what it is. Yeah. That you have one side is active and one side is releasing and it switches. Right. so when you're, when you're, stretching the back to go down you're letting the front release and then when you're lifting the front to come up you're letting the back release and so you get this uh, yin and yang thing going that's why it's called the tai chi's that's why it's called the tai chi spine stretch right it's it's tai chi like in terms of yin and yang so when you do a, a round of spine stretch how many do you do and how long do you spend on it don't do more than three in a row, 70%, right? I mean, how, how slowly can you let your body release without it being uncomfortable and go 70% of that, right? So you want to give yourself time to release, but not so much time that you disconnect. What about you personally? When you do a set, how long do you hang there? A single spine stretch takes me about five minutes. Oh, that's... <laughs> That's that's taking your time. Uh, that's a short one. No, uh, that would probably feel pretty good. I go faster than that. The longest I've ever done is twenty minutes. Oh wow! Uh, but uh, but that's um, I would say not what everyone needs to try to do. So I'd say at a beginner level, maybe you take one minute or you know a minute and a half to slowly go down and come back up. Uh, initially, do three breaths per vertebrae. Right. Or per chunk of vertebrae, depending on how you're doing it. Right. So if you're going down, the way I, I look at it is one breath to feel it, one breath to move it, and one breath to dissolve down to your feet. Then you go to the next one. But like I said, that if you do it that way, it, it takes a while. Part of it is that as you get lower down, there's more pull on your, you know, there's more stretch. So yeah, you know, that your body at some point people try to just kind of, especially when you get near the top, there's this just tendency to just kind of let it all go at once mm. and not, and, and lose the individual pieces because it's, it's, it's like, it's heavier, right? Like mm. the next instruction is to unbend the spine one vertebrae at a, point, at a time. 
So again, you start at the very base of the spine, and then as I think of it as you stack each vertebrae one by one and stand up out of your squat incrementally, working your way back up. So do you take as long going up as you go going down? That's the ideal, yeah. Basic sequence is legs, bend, release, right? So you either squat or stretch your legs, depending on which way you're going. Then you bend or lift your spine up, and then you release. So when you're coming up, it's like you're, you stand up a tiny bit with your legs, then you lift the vertebrae that you're working on, then you let it release down to your feet. Uh, so it's those three stages. That's also why I do it at three breaths because it's just timing those three, you know, you give each one of those things a full breath. And again, you could have a partner uh, put a finger at each vertebrae to help you bring your awareness to that area. Um, and he says, again, to take your time with the upper back and neck, like you were saying, to try to keep those nice and differentiated. One interesting instruction here at the end is he says, simultaneously gently push open your arm joints to your fingertips as you go up from the base of the spine to the plates of the skull. So you're slightly filling your arms as they sort of expand downward. I hadn't run across that one before. Yeah, well, it's the same way. as So when you're going down, the last thing you do is you release the plates of your skull and your fingertips. <laughs> On, uh, so it's the same thing on the way up. It's it's as you release out the top of your head, you're releasing out your fingertips and the bottom of your feet. That's the final step for going down and for going up. Mm -hmm. He ends with a few guidelines for practice. Um, you know, the idea of using a partner to help out and then the idea of using groups of vertebrae rather than single ones at first. So you build your familiarity by 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 focusing on a group of vertebrae at a time how would you say if someone's starting out how many groups would you divide the spine up into in general well there's 24 vertebrae so i usually tell people to do it in groups of four or five uh -huh. most of the time people will just move the parts that are easily easy to move at first so what you're trying to do is give yourself chunks where it's not just that you move the parts that are already stretched out. Um, so the, the reason you go in sort of even chunks is that that keeps the stretch relatively smooth and it doesn't just all happen in one part of your back. Yeah. So, yeah, I'd say about a hand's breadth, I guess, is what I like to think of. Like the breadth of your hand is that number of vertebrae at a time. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, it, you know, place your hands one by one up your back. It, it's what you can feel. I mean, that's, yeah. the, that's the, the, you know, the, the real answer is there's a whatever you can comfortably get your awareness to separate as a piece. Because one of the things that happens when you start building your awareness is you start feeling shapes inside your body, right? And so a vertebrae has a shape. And if you can feel the shape of one, and you can feel the space and you can feel the shape of another, it's pretty easy to move them separately. But if you can't feel that space, you can move the, you, you have to move them as a chunk. So mm. it, it's about your level of physical awareness. As it is with every other aspect of this, I'm starting to realize. Pretty much. Yeah, I mean, we've been saying that. So yeah. we keep coming back to that somehow. Mm -hmm. uh, so he's got some more advice here, but he's just, you know, again, don't 
don't do a ton of it all of a sudden out of nowhere and sort of jack up your back. Just take your time, do a little bit each day. Um, and again, the idea of releasing chi rather than trying to stretch, um, you know, he says it's not a requirement of the spine stretch to bend very low. What is important is the amount of nerve action through the vertebrae. So you're not trying to get as squat deeply as possible. You're trying to get as much awareness as you can into your spine. And if that means doing it in a higher stance, then do it, you know, do whatever it takes to, to do this as a, uh, nervous system release rather than, than anything on an external level. Yeah. I mean, you can do it standing up straight and just barely leaning forward. It, it, it isn't about, I mean, it helps to stretch your legs, but I do the whole thing. But in terms of getting a release that can be done with almost no physical movement. Uh, so that brings us to the end of the spine stretch. The next chapter is a bit of an afterword where he just speaks on just a general sense that we're born with chi. Over time, we we kind of use it up by not uh, taking good care of it. So use these qigong practices to help get that softness back, to get some of that springiness and that sapling feeling of spring. And I think above and beyond which exercises you do, if you can get a spring in your step and a bounce in, in your self as much or as little as you can every little bit counts you know i think that's well right i mean it's about what you get out of it so if if you're practicing a a a set that some guy made up in his basement and it works for you fine great super and if you're practicing practicing a set that people have been doing for a thousand years and it's never changed also great super Right. The, the main thing is getting squishier. Right. The main thing is that you're you're practicing every, you know, you're practicing your your art, as it were, and you enjoy it, and it benefits from you. the The thing here is that there are these handy guidelines that have been passed down for you know at least a few hundred years that we can trace back that are really helpful when you're trying to do this stuff that will save you a lot of time. And so, like the spine stretches not a unique exercise everybody does some sort of leaning leaning forward spine stretch but trying to find the number of people that do it with that level of intent and that level of detail and that level of uh just awareness uh, that that that's not so common right and and especially when you get into stuff with the spine because it it doesn't operate the same as the rest of the body it has special parameters if you if if you push too hard on your spine it will push back and it'll win no doubt so part of why some of this stuff is kind of taught with this a little bit vague and a little bit just you know go easy and don't push yourself is because you can hurt yourself in a way with your spine that you can't really if you just kind of do something with your arm or you know your legs so that piece of it is i think what makes it a higher level right you you, you'd be doing something that's more difficult right it's more difficult to stretch your spine in one vertebrae by one vertebrae than to just kind of let your head flop forward and let everything stretch at once Mm -hmm. but it takes you know a long time to get that skill so if you want that level of control then you have to put in the work and that's why it's qigong right it's it's energy work you got to do the the practice 
The next is Appendix A, Guidelines for Practice. A few of them I really have always sort of rung a bell with me. The idea of practicing until your joints feel well lubricated. He says, this activity can be thought of as uh, the dry areas inside the body becoming wet and lubricated, especially the joints, hips, spine, and waist. When the body begins to feel oiled, go on to the next exercise. So I just like that oil feeling, that sense that my joints are feeling a little more slippery. They're they're not getting stuck and crunchy. And, you know, that's that's what you don't want. To me, it's, it's that sense of when you feel that that particular motion, whether it's cloud hands or the swings, is no longer causing any resistance and you're actually generating it power energy from it not using energy to do it mm-hmm. uh mm-hmm. yeah because because nice if you're tense right and you're trying real hard uh almost immediately you're using more energy than you are than you're gaining right so that's why the first thing is always to relax because then you start gaining more energy as you do it and you know that the holy grail right is you're doing almost nothing you're putting almost no energy out and that's generating this sort of loop that then feeds this link between heaven and earth uh and that's what qigong is right it's it's powering up that that can those connections more advice here on avoiding pain if you feel pain slow down stop if your knees hurt stand a little higher work you know go less hard on them i think he makes a really good point that we've made repeatedly he wants to caution westerners in general that we live in an upper body culture and we have poor awareness of the joints of the lower body and i that rang a bell when i started to practice this stuff and i read that it made sense to me i was like i can feel that in myself and i'm i'm gonna spend years looking towards my legs and towards my hit knees and ankles to get more awareness there and and ensure i don't hurt myself um we've all you know that and that's a process for everybody you've got to go through the one that i wanted to bring up here was martial artists don't visualize fighting applications martial artists tend to visualize all sorts of fighting applications while they train the tendency is to get so wrapped up in martial arts that the body's limits are forgotten so you damage yourself um but also it just seems like there's something about these exercises you do, whether when it comes to martial arts, you kind of just do the same movements, whether anyone's there or not. And if they happen to be in the way, your arm, your swings clobber them basically is the idea as opposed to envisioning beating someone up. The looseness of your arms actually gives you quite a bit of power. I think he's also talking about just what happens to your mind when you start Mm -hmm. making mental pictures. So I don't even think it's limited to martial artists. I think it's everyone because it's just as bad to imagine in your head, imagine the perfect, you know, perfect person doing the, the second swing exactly right. And you trying to emulate that perfect person, right? Well, you're you're still just looking at pictures in your head, right? The whole whole point of it is uh, be in the moment and pay attention to your body and to the release inside your body, not the pictures inside your head. And that's... Mm -hmm. That's easier said than done. Those pictures sure uh, dominate our minds, you know? (laughs) No, but I mean, that's that's one of the... Uh, to sort of tie it all back to standing, right? One of the main things you get when you stand is that all these images in your head start popping up and you start having all these dialogues and Mm -hmm. 
things coming up. And one of the things you learn is how to quiet your mind, right? And, and let all of that chatter go. But that that's a the, the phrase quiet your mind also includes quieting your body and quieting your nerves. And that's that's what the the, the Negong part gives you. So I'd like to finish here with one of the last things that he mentions. He says, uh, you know, we can use the practice to get rid of stress, but there's the next level is to practice above and beyond this initial stress release will increase your core energy reserves, which your body mind uses in times of crisis, emergency, or recovery from illness or accident. This core reserve of chi will also determine the quality of energy available later in your life. And that to me ties it back to all those experiences Master Leo had through all this stressful wartime and famine and migration. You know, this chi is when you can build a little bit of that into your system, it just makes life more survivable. You're, you're a little more resilient and you can persevere that little bit more that you need to make it through some tough times. At least we hope so. It's like an energy bank account, right? I mean, you, you if you put money into it when you're younger, it gives you more later on. I mean, that's how Bruce mm -hmm. always describes it. And there's a certain level of when you start developing chi beyond what you need just to get by, um, if you learn how to store it, and that's what the final practice of the, the any Qigong set should be, is just to let the energy inside of you that's swirling around, let the majority of it just soak into you and let, you know, you can use a little bit of it, but, but you know, you're trying to store most of it. And mm. that over time gives you this, this energy bank account, which you can, you know, you can cash in on it when you need it. And, and that's, uh, I think why it's so good for quote unquote stress reduction, but it also, you know, has other applications. All right, man. Great talking to you today. All right. Cheers. Hey folks. Uh, Isaac again, just a quick reminder. We now have an Instagram so you can get some visuals to go along with the episodes. Uh, they can check that out. The handles, the Neja Chuan podcast. And as always, like and subscribe, leave us a review on iTunes, tell a friend, all that good stuff. Thanks for your support and take care.